Listen, we are in our final week of our Easter series. Um, we have entitled Risen, and we've been taking a look, kind of a logical look, at uh, the Gospels, at Jesus, at uh, the crucifixion, and this week we're going to look uh, at the resurrection because we believe that everything that we do hinges on Easter Sunday morning. Without that, nothing else really matters. We talked the first week about the Gospels. Remember, we, if you were here, we kind of went back and we talked about how soon after the death of Jesus were they written? Uh, are they true? Are they accurate? Are they historically and biblically true? The second week we looked at the person of Jesus. Remember I told you TJ came up and asked me what we're going to talk about this morning. I said, Jesus. He said, don't we always talk about Jesus? Right? So we talked about who he said he was, the claims that he made about himself and how all the Old Testament really points to Jesus. We walked away on week two saying that only Jesus can be Jesus. And then last week we looked at the crucifixion and we took a solemn hard look of what it really was and how he really suffered and how he really died on the cross. We, we, we proved the fact that there was no way he could have survived. There was no swoon theory. Remember, he didn't just pass out and just wake up a few days later. He was dead, and he died on the cross. Friday night, our choir gave their cantata, and they, and they left you at the cross. And this morning, we're going to talk about the resurrection. We're going to talk about the hope that we have because of the resurrection. And we're going to talk about whether really the big question is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? That's a hard question to answer, but we're going to look at some things that are going to point us all that direction. Our theme verse over the last few weeks have been in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It should be on the front of your bulletin, but it's also on the screen. It just simply says this, if there's no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Listen, church, everything that we do, every ministry that we have, whether it's children's or students or young adults or, or old adults or in-between adults, everything that we do hinges on the fact that Christ is alive. And if He's not alive, then we're wasting our time. There's been lots of people who have claimed to be God or maybe a messenger of God or even some of them be as bold to say that they are the son of God and all of them have died and are still dead. Every single one of them, you can go back to their grave and say this is where they are. And either after their death, their movement stops. Nobody really starts talking about them anymore. Or their movement continues based off the philosophy of their teaching, right? But only Christ, only we who hold ourselves accountable to Him can say that He conquered death and that our faith is not in the sayings of a dead man but in the life of a living God. That's the difference between Christianity and every other world religion that there is, is that we say our God is alive. They can go back and they can say, well, this is where he's buried, or this is the tomb of so-and-so. But we can go back and say, our tomb is empty, because Jesus is alive. The resurrection, Easter Sunday morning, is the defining point in human history. So this morning, we're going to look at the resurrection. We're going to look at what the Gospels say about the resurrection. And we're going to look at some after-effects 
of the resurrection and see how that all points back to the fact that Jesus is alive. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 through 7. We're going to be, this is going to be our, our major text for the day. We're going to have one other that we're going to look at here in just a little bit. But I just want to start off with Matthew's account of what happened on Easter Sunday morning. Matthew 28, starting in verse 1, says this. After the Sabbath, the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. You should underline that. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said he would. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you to Galilee. And there he will meet him. Now go, as I have told you. This is an incredible dis- depiction of Easter Sunday morning, the very first Easter Sunday morning. And, and Matthew is significant in his account because he's the only one that puts guards at the tomb, right? We've, we've heard that story a number of different times. If you read through the Gospels, uh, Mark, Luke, and John don't say anything about the guards. But I think the guards are there for a reason. I think it's an important part of the story because the Jews' argument against the resurrection was very simple. The Jews' argument against the resurrection was that the disciples stole the body, right? That's very easy. Well, he's not here. Well, you guys took him, right? That's very easy to kind of fall back into. But because Matthew puts guards at the tomb, this kind of disputes that argument a little bit. Remember, on the very first week that we talked, we talked about the Gospels and how early they were written. And how really, compared to most things in literature and history, the, the Gospels were written about 25 to 30 years after the death of Jesus. And if you compare that to other writings that are hundreds upon hundreds of years after, then this is pretty fast. This is still in the lifetime of the people who lived and could have said, yes, that happened, or no, that did not happen. And so when Jesus is in the, in the tomb and Matthew writes back and says, there's these guards that are there... There's got to be a little bit of banter back and forth, right? Now, I, we've, we've been talking through these whole ideas uh, out, of the, out of the context of the book, The Case for Christ, which the movie just released, I believe, last weekend. And, and Lee Strobel wrote this incredible book and had all this incredible um, interviews and uh, research that he applied to trying to disprove Christianity. And one of the guys in the book talks about this, this banter that had to happen between Jews and Christians after the death of Jesus. The, the Christians could have simply just said, Jesus is risen. The Jews would have said, no, 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 no. You guys stole his body. The Christians would have said, well, we couldn't have stole his body. The, the guards would have kept us from doing that. And so the Jews' only reaction, the only thing, the only card they had to play was, well, the, the guards fell asleep. They are real tired. It's been a long day. And so when they were asleep, you, you guys must have stole the body then. And, and 
the Christian's response was, you don't, you, don't, you don't understand that. You guys told everybody to tell the guards that they fell asleep. We don't, we don't have the body. If there were no guards present, the conversation would have went like this. Jesus is risen. No, you guys stole his body. No, the guards would have kept us. What guards? Right? And so there's this, there's this idea that because of the placement of the guards, it, it kind of reinforces the fact that the resurrection had to happen. Listen, if you're a Roman guard, if you're a guard guarding the tomb, what's your job? Guard, right? That's real easy. You've got one job, the guard. And if you're going to sleep, then sleep in shifts, right? That's not hard to figure out. But if you're a guard, and if you're guarding a tomb that has a big rock in front of it, and you can sleep through that, some of you women are like, my husband can sleep through anything. Like, he would be that guy, right? But seriously, that, it's, it's kind of a comical response. Well, they fell asleep. Really? When we moved this big rock and talked about it, because you've got to know that some of the disciples probably weren't very quiet, not very stealthy men back then. And so this idea of the guards being there were very, very important because that kind of reemphasized the fact that the disciples couldn't have done it. One of the quotes in the book says, The Jews proposed this ridiculous story that the guards fell asleep and they were grasping at straws because the point is this. They started with the assumption that the tomb was empty because they knew that it was. See, what's very significant about the Jewish response to the empty tomb was they never said the tomb wasn't empty. They always said, yeah, the tomb's empty. You guys must have done something. They never once said, no, here he is. You guys are wrong. He's still there. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is, a, this is the early uh, creed that we talked about a few weeks ago, and we've kind of bounced back to it a couple of different times in, in our last few weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives us this early Christian creed. And what, we've already dated this. I don't want to kind of re-preach what I've already preached. But essentially, this creed is being circulated among the first generation of Christians within about two to three years after the death of Jesus. Remember, we dated the book of Acts, and then the, that, that Luke was written before Acts, and so we go back a little bit even further, and then, then to have this all circulating before all this, we can go back to just a few years before or after Jesus' death. And this is what it says, verse 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For what I received I passed on to you as first importance. This is the creed. That Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that He was buried, that He raised on the third day according to Scripture. He died, He was buried, and He rose. Some people say, well, they got the wrong tomb. The Marys that came to see Jesus' body that day, they must have walked up to the wrong tomb, and, and that's the reason, obviously, Jesus is not there, because they were at the wrong place. But if that were the case, don't you think the Jews would have come back and said, Hey guys, hello, wrong one, two doors down on your left, that's Jesus' tomb, that's where he is. Right? That would be a very easy story to kind of combat. You got the wrong one. Here, here he is. Look, we'll roll the stone back for you. There he is. 
kind of kind of preposterous to think that they would say it's the wrong one when they could so easily prove and then another theory says that the disciples did actually steal jesus body that that they snuck in that if the guards were asleep they rolled back the stone they took his body and they buried him somewhere else and then on easter sunday morning they kind of made up the story of the resurrection that he must be back to life because he's not in the tomb and the big question to that is why would these same men who stole a body suffer and die for a lie that they know is a lie that makes no sense to us see the gospels give us a couple of different accounts about what happened on Easter Sunday morning the uh, and the big picture is all the same but they they write it from different perspectives and and I love that it's not exactly the same like if it were copied from one book to the other to the other we would all raise question and go this kind of seems like he wrote what he wrote and he wrote what he wrote but each one of them tell a little different variation in the story in Matthew we just read Mary and Mary arrive at the tomb with the rock in front of it there's a big earthquake and an angel descends, rolls the stone back and says, Jesus is risen. And then from there, he says, run and tell the disciples. And they end up meeting Jesus on the way to tell the disciples. In Mark, women arrive and the stone has already been rolled back. And there's a youth that says a young man sitting inside the tomb. And they kind of describe him almost angelic. And so we're assuming that it was an angel. And he says, Jesus is not here. And the ladies run away and they don't say anything to anybody. In Mark, all right, it was in Mark and Luke, multiple women are there. It names off three or four different ladies who are there. The stones already rolled back. They go and tell the disciples, but the disciples don't believe them. And then in John, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, saw that it was empty, comes back and tells Peter and John, the guy who wrote the book of John, and of course John says he outran Peter to the tomb. Because if you're going to write a story, aren't you going to write the story saying that you're faster? Right? And so John and Peter run to the tomb, and, and John kind of gets, gets there, and they, he stops outside, remember, and Peter, because he's just, Peter, he just runs all the way in and kind of looks around, and finally John enters in with him, and they say that they see the burial cloth, and the clothes of Jesus and the cloth that covered his face was folded up neatly and placed where he laid. I love that depiction because here's what this means. The resurrection was not a surprise to Jesus. There wasn't this panic and this I've got to get out of this tomb moment. It was a deliberate, planned event. On the third day, he came back to life set up folded his clothes and he walked out of the tomb see all four gospels tell the same story people went to the tomb the tomb was empty people went to the tomb and the tomb was empty but here's the hard truth about the empty tomb an empty tomb does not equate a resurrection right just because the tomb is empty, it doesn't mean that there's been a resurrection. And so the, the big problem with all this is, is that there was no witness to the resurrection event. Like nobody was in the tomb with Jesus watching him. 
just sitting back eating Cheetos and watching what's going to happen next. We don't have an eyewitness event of the resurrection. But what we have is we have a lot of things that point to it on the backside of the resurrection. The, the best thing that I read toward this says, to, to prove the resurrection, you have, to, you have to answer two very simple questions. One, did Jesus die on a cross? Yeah, everybody should be nodding their head yes. Yes, good. Two, did he appear to people afterwards? Yes. So if yes and yes, that equals a resurrection, quote, because dead people don't normally do that. Right? That's the, that's the easiest like, equation to prove resurrection. Did he die? Yes. Did he appear later? Yes. He must have been resurrected because most dead people don't do that. That's a very easy way to see that. But let's look, okay? Go back to your creed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in verse 3, we started with, For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. This is, uh, this is Paul writing, saying this is, the, this is really, really important, so I gave it to you as soon as I got it. Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to Scripture. Remember, this is important, and this is just a side note. This Scripture he's referencing is not the New Testament. Listen, Paul wrote this before the Gospels were written. He's quoting Old Testament. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about how all the Old Testament points to Jesus being Jesus? He's saying, according to Scripture, according to all the prophets in the Old Testament, this really happened. And he goes on to say, He appeared to Caiaphas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom who are still living, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last he also appeared to me as one abnormally born. Notice the specific people that he's listed off here. This whole phrase is kind of what's being circulated in the early church. This whole thought of, of how... Jesus was dead, buried, and came back to life, and he appeared to these people. And this is all starting to kind of start really gaining some momentum in the early church. He lists off Caiaphas. This is Peter. He lists off the disciples. More than 500 people. James. This is not, uh, this is not James the disciple. This is James, Jesus' brother. Paul. These are all people and events that took place that could have been combated because this was being circulated just three to four years after Jesus' death. And so if, if these people had not seen him, they could have stood up and said, hey, get my name out of that. That didn't happen. I didn't witness that. I didn't see what you're saying I saw. It says there's 500 people. It doesn't list their names, thankfully, right? Because we'd be here for a long time reading this passage of Scripture. 500 people. And, and a lot of people can read that and say, well, that's just a very generic number. That's like when, when someone goes fishing and they caught 500 crappie. Or they caught a fish this big. Or they killed a deer with a rat this big. And some of you I know, you know who I'm talking about, right? Those people who are here. 
It's just kind of a generic number. But here's what's so interesting about this is that, that Paul, who wrote this, apparently has a little bit of intimate knowledge about these 500 people because he says some of them have died. Although some are still very much alive. This, this 500 are not just faceless people. Paul, Paul knew them. He didn't list their name. But he knows enough about them to know whether they're still alive or they've passed away. And he says, all these people could have stood up and said, no. No, he didn't, he didn't do that. See, some skeptics say that, that they all hallucinated at the same time and, and saw an image in their mind of the resurrection Jesus. And, and that must be where we get these 500 people. But even psychologists say that, that hallucination is it's personal that you never see a hallucination in the mind of two different people the exact same thing. Some people say, well, it must have been an idea of groupthink. They all kind of got together and said, this is what we're going to say that we did. So you say it, and you say it, and you say it, and make sure that everybody sticks to the same story over thousands of years so that nobody can combat our story that doesn't make any sense. All these people, all these specific people listed, all saw Jesus after he died on a cross. The only way to make sense of that is that Jesus came back to life. So here's, here's another thing, and I, I, I want to look at this after the empty tomb idea. The disciples died for their belief. I've got four kind of thoughts that kind of go underneath this, and we're just going to go methodically through each one of them. The first one is the disciples died for their belief. We kind of hinted to this a little earlier, but, but think about the disciples after the crucifixion. Remember Peter who, who followed at a distance and ended up denying the fact that he even knew Jesus? The rest of them kind of scattered after he was arrested. We have to assume that the majority of them, if not firsthand witnessed the crucifixion, they were around enough to know that it actually happened. A lot of them were too scared to even go because they didn't want to be they didn't want to be nailed next to him. But then those three days that Jesus is dead, we talked about this on Friday night, there was just this sense of hopelessness. Kind of a sense of loss, not knowing what to do next. Remember, Peter even said, I'm going fishing. It's what I did before he called me. I don't know what else to do now. I'm going to go back to work. Some of them would gather up in, in, in rooms behind locked doors and just kind of try to process the events of the days ahead of them. And, and then just a few Weeks after the resurrection, we see the disciples again. We see them empowered. We see them collective. We see them preaching a gospel that is changing the world. But they, they've, they've quit their occupations permanently. They have a new assignment in life. And they're preaching Jesus came, He died, He was buried, and He came back to life. A very simple gospel. And if they didn't believe it, then why would they die for a lie? Here I've got written down, Peter, 
was crucified and and history tells us that he he said he was not worthy to die in the manner of christ and so he's crucified head down upside down on a cross andrew peter's brother was beaten and then tied not nailed to a cross because when you tie somebody to a cross it takes them longer to die he hung on a cross for two days and the whole time he was on the cross he was preaching to people who were standing in front of him about jesus who died who was buried and who came back to life james remember john's brother james was killed with a sword. Philip was a missionary in Asia, traveled to Egypt, and was crucified there. Bartholomew preached in several countries, including India. He said, some say that he was crucified, and others say that he was skinned alive and then beheaded. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia by being stabbed in the back. Thomas was run through with a spear. James, the son of Alphaeus, died at 94. He was one of the oldest disciples to live died at 94 years old by being beaten, by being stoned, and by being hit in the head with a club until he died. The other Judas, remember we talked about him, Thaddeus, he changed his name because he didn't want to be known as Judas. He was crucified. Simon the Zealot preached in Africa and crucified in 74 AD. John, the beloved disciple, the one who outran Peter to the tomb is the only one who died of old age. But before we start thinking, oh, good for John, history tells us that they tried to kill John by dipping him in boiling oil, but that the oil would not touch his skin. That's why he was exiled to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. They couldn't kill him, so they put him on an island. These men suffered and died for the fact that they believed they saw the risen Jesus. Why in the world would they do that if they did not see him? Why in the world would they suffer and die awful deaths for something they knew was not true? Because here's the fact. People die for their religious beliefs all the time, right? Because they believe what they believe is true. But nobody dies for a religious belief that they know is false these men gave their life preaching the gospel saying that jesus died was buried and rose again the second part of proof is the skeptics right skeptics come to faith in jesus and we two very easy examples of this is is paul obviously number one paul was uh, a good christian or a good Jewish boy. His job as a Pharisee was to eradicate the Jesus movement, to kill as many Christians as he can. And then we read in Acts uh, where, where then Saul, his name was Saul, changed to Paul when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? Something changed his perspective in life. Something changed his, his, whole, his whole goal in life. Kill the Christians, stop the movement. And then he became the first real missionary, Christian missionary. He traveled all over the place and ended up writing 13 books in the New Testament. What changed Paul, Saul, to Paul? It had to be the resurrected Christ. There's nothing else that could do that. But here's my favorite example. 
James, Jesus' brother. You got to know growing up with Jesus as your older brother is probably pretty hard, right? Like how many times did Mary say, why can't you be more like your brother? <laughs> well, he's God. <laughs> but the fact is, is that James didn't believe Jesus to be Jesus. If you read the Gospels, in a couple of different accounts, Jesus' brothers and sisters are mentioned. They're kind of general. And each time, they're, one time they, it says they, they try to take control of Jesus, which I think would be very interesting to see happen. Another time, Jesus' brothers kind of are making fun of him. They're saying, why don't you go up there and do something about this? Why don't, you, why don't you go do what you say you can do, Jesus? See, the brothers, his own family, didn't believe him. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, in that little creed that we read, remember verse 7? Then he appeared to James. And something changed in James' life. He went from not believing, thinking his brother was crazy, and the next time we read about James in the book of Acts, James is the head of the Christian church in Jerusalem. He's kind of like the president of Christians at this point. Paul has to go and present himself to James and kind of prove the fact that he's no longer the Paul that kills Christians. He's the Paul that wants to make Christians. And James has to kind of give him a little stamp of approval. James had an encounter with Jesus that changed his whole mindset toward his brother. Can you imagine that interaction? When Jesus, who knew and grew up and was so close to his brother, appeared to him and said, Hey, James, I told you. <laughs> I told you this was going to happen. Something changed in James's world. James was... The resurrected Jesus. The third thing that changes and kind of points to this idea of a resurrection is the social structure. The Jewish social structure begins to really, really change after the death of Jesus. What we see, and the question that is kind of before us is, why don't we have Babylonians anymore? Or Assyrians or uh, Hittites? Why don't, why don't we talk about those people anymore? But we still talk about Jews. Like Jews who have been around for, for thousands of years. We still talk about the Jews. Why? Well, because the Jews, for, for centuries, have taken every possible precaution to maintain their Jewish heritage. Right? Since God made His covenant with Abraham, they have always seen themselves as set apart, as God's chosen people. And they did everything in their power to keep their Jewishness Jewish. Does that make sense? And so even all the way through today, they still want to see, be seen as separate, as set aside, as different. And even if you, if you put this with the context of uh, Jesus' time frame, they sure didn't want to be known as just another group of people like the Romans. And so they wanted to be separate. They wanted to show themselves as distinct, and they held on to traditions, and they held on to their Jewish roots. So why, after 1,500 to 2,000 years of Jewish culture and Jewish tradition, 
just a few months after the death of a Jewish carpenter, over 10,000 Jews completely abandoned their heritage for something new. And hundreds of thousands, and then millions and billions more since. Why would something that they held so close to for so long be now changed and flipped on its head? And we can, we can even do this as simple as just their worship, okay? Remember, we go all the way back to Genesis. And in the beginning, God created, and He had all these things that He created. On the seventh day, what did He do? He rested. It was the Sabbath. On the seventh day was the Sabbath. It was a holy day to Jews. They did nothing on the Sabbath. They still do nothing on the Sabbath. No work, no extra, no nothing. The Sabbath is for rest and for worship, and that's it. But now, all of a sudden, after the death of Jesus, they no longer worship on the Sabbath, on Saturday. They worship on Sunday. Why? Because Sunday, the first day of the week, is when Jesus rose from the grave. It changed everything, even down to the day that they go to church. They said, I'm not going to do what we've been doing for thousands of years. I'm going to worship the God who came back to life on the first day of the week. That's why we have church on Sunday. Because Jesus came back to life on the first day of the week. All these Jews said, I'm not going to worry about all my traditions. I'm going to follow wholeheartedly after Jesus. The last thing I have on my points is the church. We have the disciples, the skeptics, the social structure, and then we have the church. When you think about the time of Jesus' crucifixion, you think about all the things that are happening in this culture and in this small, really, area of the world, which one do you think would have more validity now? that we would be talking more about now. The Roman Empire or this ragtag group of Christians. The Roman Empire and all its glory and all its splendor and all its innovation and all its free thinking and all of its philosophy and all of its pomp and circumstance around Caesar and around the rulers and around all the, 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 the dress and all the stuff that they would do in Rome that was just so over the top. Or this little group of men and women who claim to have seen a dead man come back to life. We put it into that perspective and we go, this is, this is crazy. That these, these men begin to preach this gospel of a God who loved them so much that he sent his only son. The Bible uses the word his one and only or his beloved son. It just means his very unique son to live among us, to teach us how to live and how to to love and to point us in a God to a God in a way that we've never even been able to have access to. The same Son of God not only just came, but He died for our sins. An awful, horrible death. And three days later, He came back to life again. He showed Himself to hundreds of people. And He proved that He conquered sin and death. And if you simply surrender your life 
to Him, you have full access to God the Father through the forgiveness of your sins. Thousands of people responded to that message the very first time it was preached. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands more, even to this day. Listen, when we compare the the power and the incredible might of the Roman Empire, and we look at the church and how it has survived and it has thrived and it has grown and it has multiplied. Listen, we don't get everything right all the time, but we get this right. Jesus came and he died. He was buried and he came back alive. If you know those four things, that's all. That's what, that's what everything hinges on. There's, there's lots. Listen, we could talk about how to live your life, how to love people, how to, how to love God, what that really looks like, and how to flesh that out in our lives. But, but it all comes back down to that you've got to have this core foundational knowledge. Died, buried, and came back to life. Once we understand that, then we understand the power of the resurrection. Listen, the, the book had this incredible quote, kind of quippy. There's a reason why we name our kids Peter and Paul and why we name our dogs Caesar and Nero. I was like, That's, that'll preach right there. That's good stuff. There's a reason why. Because this little group of guys... And this group of women that we hardly ever talk about that were there, they believed wholeheartedly. They saw firsthand. And they see the power of the resurrection. Listen, church, if you're looking for proof, if you're looking for how do I know that he's still alive, I'm proof. We could look through the, the audience Josh is proof. Chad is proof. Susie's proof. Paul is proof. We are all living proof of the resurrection. We are, we are all being brought to this thought that, that God is alive and He is well. And, and we don't serve or worship a God that's dead. We serve and worship a God that is very much alive. Hey, this is Matt Overall, the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just want to say thanks so much for watching our services, whether through our television ministry or our online ministry. We appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service. Uh, Sunday morning service starts at 1030. Our small groups start at 930. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. We've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel, from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.